Chapter Three of From Bangkok to Bombay, Siam, French Indochina, Burma, Hindustan, by Frank G. Carpenter. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. King Rama and His Realm. I have just returned from a visit to the palace of the King of Siam. I have gone by the golden elephants at the portals, walked past the soldiers at the gate, and viewed the reception room and the audience chambers. I have gone into the stables of his sacred white elephants and have given the ugly beasts a taste of heathen grass. Official letters from Washington gave me access to the Minister of Foreign Affairs and one of the English-speaking nobles connected with the ministry, a copper-colored, black-mustached young Siamese, acted as my guide. The Royal Palace at Bangkok, which was built in the reign of Chulalongkorn, father of the present king, looks not unlike the homes of rulers in Europe. It is of three stories and in the French style, but has a typical Siamese roof covered with green and gold tiles. At a distance it appears to be made of marble, but a closer inspection shows that what seems to be stone is merely stucco. The golden elephants, each about half life-size, which guard the entrance, change as you come near them from massive gold to gilded iron. Between the elephants, wide marble stairways lead to heavy doors of carved teakwood, opening into a great vestibule. The ceiling of the vestibule is about 40 feet high, and the walls of polished teak are hung with ancient Siamese armor. At the right is the king's council chamber. His throne is like a bed, and he lies on his arm or sits Siamese fashion, a la Turk, while he receives his advisers and discusses matters of state. The ministers and nobles sit on leather-cushioned benches, and the portraits of Siamese heroes, done in oil by European artists, look down upon them from the walls. Just back of the throne, there is a portrait of a shaven-headed, half-naked Buddhist bonds. It is a likeness of the high priest of the kingdom, and thus the proceedings go under the eye of a representative of Buddha himself. The priests, by the way, claim that the royal family are lineal descendants of Buddha. On the other side of the vestibule is a grand reception room, fully as wide and nearly as long as the East Room of the White House at Washington. This is paved with marble mosaic, and its ceiling, twice as high as that of the East Room, is gorgeously decorated with carvings of gold. Brilliant chandeliers depend from it, and about the walls are oil paintings of the royal family. The furniture of this room is European, and there are rare vases from Dresden, filigree work from Venice, and other objects of art from the Western world. Beyond is still another great reception room, into which I was escorted by the Siamese noble who conducted me through the palace. Here, two of the largest elephant's tusks I have ever seen, wonderfully carved, stand beside the mantel, and there are cabinets filled with gold knick-knacks from card cases to beetle boxes. Leaving these rooms, we crossed the vestibule and entered the throne room. This is a splendid hall with a lofty, vaulted ceiling inlaid with many pieces of colored glass like a Tiffany window. The light shining through makes this colored ceiling look as though it were made of jewels. The walls below are decorated with gilt frescoes. The three immense glass chandeliers, like those of the East Room of the White House, 
were made for the palace of Franz Joseph of Austria, but were bought by Chula Longcorn. The floor is of marble mosaic, and the king sits on a great chair on a rostrum at the back. Five steps lead up to it, and beside it are the royal umbrellas. Directly over it is a nine-story, pagoda-like umbrella of white and gold. Theoretically, at least, the man who holds forth in all this state is the absolute ruler of ten millions of people, over whom he has the power of life and death. His subjects are his slaves. He has the right to call them into his service, either with or without pay, and any man in Siam may be forced to give him either the whole or a part of his time. His word can throw a man into chains or put him to death, can deprive him of his property or rob him of his daughter. All the women of Siam are supposed to belong to him. He may tax the people as he pleases, and he can spend tens of thousands of dollars in cremating a dead wife, in establishing a navy, or in gratifying any other whim that may be his. So much for theory. It is true that Rama VI, King of Siam, is one of the few absolute rulers left upon earth, and that there is no democratic institution to say him nay. But in actual practice, he exercises none of the tyrannical prerogatives that I have named, and is not at all the kind of ruler that such absolute power usually breeds. I have not been so fortunate as to meet His Royal Highness. I have, however, met many men connected with the court, who are well informed about him and his kingdom. My talks with them and with old residents of the country have given me almost as good an understanding of his personality as though I had interviewed him. A recent photograph of King Rama lies on the table before me. It is a picture of a pleasant, round-faced man of early middle age. He wears a plain military uniform, which seems to be his favorite dress, and he appears generally unassuming and likable. I am told that King Rama is much impressed with his responsibility as head of his people. He is determined to lead them farther along in the paths of progress in which their feet were set in the time of his father, Chula Longkorn, and even of his grandfather, Mong Kut. When Mong Kut was heir to the Siamese throne, he was for years cheated out of the succession by one of his father's wives. She had gained possession of the treasury and had bought up enough votes in the council of nobles, without whose sanction no one could then take the imperial office to give her own son the crown. For 26 years, Mongkut remained in a Buddhist monastery where he learned Latin from the Jesuits, read and wrote English with the missionaries, and corresponded with men of letters in England and America. Thus, when at last he came to the throne, he was acquainted with Western ideas and fired with an ambition to make his obscure little state one of the nations of the world. His son, Chula Longhorn, succeeded Mongkut at the age of 15 and reigned for 58 years. Educated by European tutors, he had great respect for Western ideals and institutions. He sent his son Rama, the present king, to Sandhurst and Oxford, while 10 of his other sons were educated at Eton. He established and endowed a full-fledged university at Bangkok with departments of law, medicine, and engineering, and even opened a college for women. A Harvard man, Professor Strobel, was employed as a general advisor to the king 
and his government. When Strobel died of blood poisoning due to an insect bite received in Egypt as he was on his way home for a vacation, another American was selected in his place. Moreover, Professor Strobel's old mother was pensioned for life by the Siamese government. In Mongkut's time, the person of the monarch was considered so sacred that none dare approach him or remain in his presence save on hands and knees. At the first assembly convened by Chulalongkorn, he commanded those in attendance to stand. Mongkut rode in a golden sedan chair carried on the shoulders of one hundred men in liveries of scarlet and gold. Chulalongkorn drove over the new macadam roads of his kingdom in a basket phaeton drawn by twenty white ponies. When the present ruler returned from his studies and his travels abroad, he brought back eighty-three different models of automobiles of American and European makes. It was Rama, too, who introduced the typewriter to the kingdom. He was pleased with the first machine he saw as a youngster and ordered one made specially for him with a keyboard of Siamese characters. His father was delighted and decreed that all manuscripts presented at court be typed on the new kind of machine. In 1911, in the presence of a number of representatives of the powers formerly invited to witness the ceremony, Rama VI assumed the Siamese crown. On that occasion, he swore to rule as Buddha's prince. The kingdom that Rama inherited had an area nearly four-fifths that of Texas with a population almost equal to that of the state of New York. It came into his possession intact and without any strings upon it. During the last century, when the powers were helping themselves to slices of China, Siam maintained her independence, although for years the British on the north and the French on the south watched for a chance to gobble her up between them. Now England, France, and Siam are restrained by treaties and common interests, and Siam seems likely to remain Muang Tai, land of the free, as the Siamese call it in recognition of the fact that it has never been under foreign rule. The principal product of the country is rice, which is also the staple food of the people. After domestic needs are met, there is an annual surplus of something over a million tons for export. Most of this business is handled from Bangkok, which, with the surrounding district, has 80 rice mills. The bulk of the grain comes down the rivers and through the canals that form a network over the whole country, but some is shipped to the capital by rail. Siam now has about 1,400 miles of government-owned railways. There is through service from Bangkok to Penang in the Federated Malay States and Singapore in the Straits settlements. In the northern part of the country are dense forests which furnish valuable teak, used by shipbuilders and furniture makers all over the world. The forests are under control of a British conservator appointed by the king and assisted by several British foresters. Siam has also extensive mineral resources, including deposits of tin, tungsten, coal, iron, and wolfram. Many of her young men are studying mining engineering. King Rama has extended his father's plans for the educational advancement of his people. It is said that every man in the kingdom can read and write, though the girls and women are mostly illiterate. The literacy of the men is partly due to their training under the Buddhist monks. 
king's college a boarding school for sons of the siamese nobility has been enlarged and the institution for the daughters of nobles has quite as high a standard as have some of the best of our schools for girls in the civil service school young men are trained for positions in the department of the interior many others are being sent abroad to complete their educations and scholarships of fifteen hundred dollars a year are awarded annually for four-year courses in the colleges of europe and america some of the prize men at harvard cornell columbia oxford and cambridge are from siam these siamese youths often excel in athletics too one of the king's brothers was coach of a crew at oxford rama the sixth himself approves of athletic and military training the siamese boy scout troops are affiliated with the wild tigers a body of fifty companies of young officials and other civilians organized for special training as in most european countries today universal military service prevails and on a war basis the siamese army musters about eighty thousand horse and foot siam joined in the war against germany in nineteen eighteen and in june of that year sent her regiments of yellow-skinned troops to take part in the great conflict in the city of bangkok is a white shaft erected to the memory of the siamese who fell in the world war some say there was literally only one of him as the troops under the flag of the white elephant arrived too late to get into the fight at any rate siam's action won for her a place at the treaty-making councils of versailles to which she sent a delegation to look after her interests two of the pet vices of siam which is by the way not an especially vicious country have been attacked with vigor by the present king these are opium smoking and gambling in the past a large part of the government's revenue came from licensed gambling and the opium traffic by increasing trade and by developing the resources of siam rama's government has been able to dispense with these sources of income the opium traffic has been taken under strict control and gambling is no longer licensed or even officially sanctioned i should say however that it will be a long time before the siamese will be broken of the gambling habit there is nothing that appeals more to these happy-go-lucky people than a game of chance one of the favorites seems to be fantan and i have seen many siamese collected in groups about mats presided over by the chinamen who act as the bankers little shells are used instead of cash and the game is substantially the same as that played in china gambling is especially common among the people living along the river and it is not unknown i am told among the palace ladies king rama's attitude toward the women of his country was regarded by his subjects as nothing short of revolutionary and he is still regarded with wonder because he has but one wife among the ordinary siamese the status of women is far above that in most asiatic countries they are not secluded and young men and girls meet with such freedom that usually they form attachments for each other which are taken into consideration when marriages are arranged by their parents in case of a divorce the wife retains her dowry as well as the custody of half the children of the marriage according to the siamese the uneven numbers are the lucky ones and it is the divorced wife who gets the first third and the rest of the odd-numbered offspring 
Polygamy is permitted, but does not generally exist among the mass of the people. In the earlier days, the ladies of the royal household, however, had not so much freedom as had their common sisters. The sovereign was expected to have in his harem a member of every influential family in his domain, for it was thought that in no other way could he keep in close touch with his people and also hold in check any overambitious nobleman. Therefore, besides his several hundred wives, the Siamese king had a number of concubines and dancers, called collectively the palace ladies. These were kept secluded, appearing only at private gatherings and never at public functions. Even Chula Longcorn, father of the present king, had between seven and eight thousand wives and palace ladies. When the young crown prince returned home from his stay abroad, he was told that he might choose for himself a hundred or so of the most attractive of the court beauties. He astonished his father by declaring that he would marry only one wife and that he would marry for love alone. As a matter of fact, he remained a bachelor until eleven years after his coronation, when, in his forty-second year, he married his cousin, the Princess Lakshmi. Even before his coronation, he did away with the seclusion of the women of the royal household, and on that occasion the court ladies were everywhere in evidence, at the royal theatre, at the public receptions, and at the coronation ball. Many of them are now adopting European dress, and in short, Siamese court society is undergoing a complete revolution. Another example of the modernization of Siam under its present ruler is the decline in the glory of its famous white elephants. Though the white elephant is the imperial beast of the kingdom, and his likeness still appears on the national flag, his former prestige has disappeared. Traditionally, he is supposed to be the embodied spirit of some ancient king or hero, and time was when the people worshipped him. In King Mongkut's day, for example, when a party of hunters reported the capture of a white elephant, the news spread like lightning, and all Siam was wild with delight. The monarch dispatched an escort of great personages to mount guard over the royal animal, which was tied by silken ropes in the forest where he had been found. There, for a period, he was tamed and taught the proper etiquette for his exalted role. He was then conducted along special roads cut through the forest to the former capital at Ayuthia, where he was put aboard a floating wooden palace hung with crimson curtains and carpeted with gilded matting. All the way down the Minam to Bangkok, obsequious attendants bathed him, perfumed him, fanned, and flattered him. The sweetest of sugar cane, the brownest of wheat cakes, the tenderest of grass were served him from trays of gold and silver, and in his drink were fragrant jessamine flowers. King and court met him with appropriate honors, and he was baptized by the priests, being christened with the name and title chosen for him by the sovereign. This name was inscribed on a piece of sugar cane, which was extended to the elephant, who swallowed it at once, thus indicating that he accepted the honors bestowed upon him. Then he was inducted into a palace scarcely less gorgeous than that of royalty itself. He had his own special retinue, some of whom looked after his wardrobe of velvet and silk coverings embroidered in gold and jewels. Thus he passed his days at enormous expense to the kingdom. 
it might be however that for some reason the king would present one of the royal white elephants to a courtier indeed it was said that he made such a gift only to one whom he wished to ruin for the expense of maintaining the pampered beast in the style to which he was accustomed was guaranteed to bankrupt even the wealthiest noble this by the way is supposed to be the origin of the expression to have a white elephant on one's hands well the three scraggy old fellows i saw in the royal stables this morning were a sorry sight compared to those of other days as everybody knows there is no such thing as a really white elephant but some are found with pale gray or pinkish skins and these are called white the only white parts of the animals i saw were their long flopping ears which were spotted with the pale blotches of some skin disease the beasts were in dirty stables and were attended by dirty keepers and there was not the slightest sign of imperial pomp about them the last one to be captured came down in a reinforced freight car from ayuthia to bangkok the king neither went himself nor sent the royal elephants to meet him though in the evening his highness did visit the stables and give the newcomer a title beginning with count i think it is probable that the king's elephant stables are now maintained solely out of regard for the superstitions of some of the more ignorant siamese end of chapter three